Make that the cold drop. Make that the cold I dare you to make that the cold drop. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to rethink about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Good to be back. And Lloyd Williams Jones. Hello there. And together, we're going to explore routines. But first, Neil, what's you reading for? What are you reading for? So I've not been away on holiday this Easter, so I've stuck very much to uh, the script of reading educational uh, texts and books. And I've gone for something that I found quite recently uh, called Development of a, of a Sustainable Place Value Understanding. And these researchers believe they have come up with a empirical hierarchical sequence of developments that you go through to uh, until you have a complete understanding of place value. I've been reading, I think, because of the work that we've been doing with them. Um, at all on a Wednesday and going through that CPD course college, I've kind of been quite interested by how place value originates and particularly how it's taught at uh, primary school because if you fail to really understand place value then the rest of mathematics is uh, locked out for you so I've been really interested in what their model of place value looks like and whether there's anything from there that we can garner as to how it might improve our instruction in how we teach it. Lloyd what have you been reading for? Uh, thanks, Neil. So I have been on holidays <laughs> um, <laughs> to Egypt. So my uh, my my reading slightly lighter around pool, but I did read a really interesting book called Gypsy Boy, and it's a story of um, uh, of a man called Mikey Walsh, who was a Roman Gypsy, and it's his story. It's quite a it's quite a harrowing story actually about his experience in in the travel community uh, as he as he's gay. And basically, it's a very dark, but quite funny at times, uh, sort of narrative that takes you right up to his his kind of escape from the community uh, in the end. It's it's just, it really resonated with me because obviously our community being uh, such a large percentage of Gypsy Romney Traveller, I was really intrigued by how he perceived LGBTQ plus and, and that kind of how how that was viewed within his community obviously it's something that we need to talk about in schools and it's you know for us it's a it's a, it's a challenging situation so I was very very interested and uh, in his journey and he eventually became a, a teaching assistant actually for a short while before he started writing his books so um, I, I'd really like to speak to him actually <laughs> uh, he's on Twitter I have I have sent him a message but I don't know whether he'll, re- he'll reply but I'd really like to tap into his 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 sort of experience and, and his understanding. So um, yeah, so it was a really, really hard read, but uh, but an also quite a, you know, I can put it down. So um, yeah. Kieran, what are you reading for? 
I don't think my holiday read lends itself as well to my job. Um, and by the pool, I was reading the second in the, the first law trilogy, which is sort of like a low fantasy trilogy. I think there's nine books in total. Um, but basically, it's about this big epic um, story that's happening, you know, almost like Vikings with a little bit of magic. And uh, but I, like I said, I, I can't find a way to squeeze it into what, uh, you know, except for the fact that reading is a really enjoyable pastime. And it's good to have some time while the kids are sort of floating around and spend time jumping into the, the swimming pool. But in terms of education, recently I was at a, a Kent and Medway Maths conference type thing for their, the people who work with them over the year. And they gave everyone a free book. And the one I took was um, Algebraable which is sort of the a relation of Algebra Dabra, um, which sort of looks at how we can make algebra more accessible to pupils of 11 years and above. And this algebraable is for 11 years and below. And it's like 100 tasks. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's designed by Dietmar Kukeman. And, you know, I think he's Professor Smudge on Twitter. And essentially what this is, that, you know, try to challenge pupils to engage with early algebra and pre-algebra and, you know, and how how much that is important and you know, so if we're looking for great tasks you know look no further and they're collecting this sort of this book that's been published by the the association of teachers of mathematics you know so well worth uh, well worth checking out so the focus of this week's episode is routines and lloyd i think there's there are a few better places to explain what do we mean by routines there's a lot, of, a lot of writing around routines and there's some really smart thinkers as well around routines, you know, Peps, obviously, James Clear, you know, his Atomic Habits, and it influences a lot, a lot of thinking around it. So I was kind of having a read and, th- and, and thinking about, how, you know, where I could get the best description of this, but I, the one I, I've sort of, I think would, is, is a great way to capture what we mean by routines is um, from Joe Kinnard's blog who is, a, as I believe, a secondary RE teacher, very, very smart guy, um, writes really well. So I'm just going to read his definition because I think it's, this was a nail on the head. He said, a routine is a sequence of actions triggered by a specific prompt or cue that is repeated so often it becomes an automatic response. And I think that kind of, cap- for me, that captures the very kind of clean, clear, almost cog side sort of description of what a routine is. But I'd like to supplement that with something James Clear said from, from Atomic Habits. And um, that he said, the seed of every habit is a single decision. Uh, and for me, that, that as, as teachers, what we mean by routines is supporting children to make those decisions for, to, so, that, so that we can grow those flowers, if you will. Um, I, I think just both of those definitions side by side give a kind of good rounded feel to what we mean when we say um, routines. Yeah, not much to add that. I agree with everything you've said. I just think it's important as class teachers you're looking through that lens of routines for um, children as school leaders you're not only looking at how you can support class teachers within that but also you're probably thinking well what routines could we put in place for teachers uh, to make their working lives as easy as possible as well are we thinking about routines on two different scales then perhaps are there routines that are you know, I don't really want to use macro and micro because then I'll just get sort of pigeonholed as someone who describes everything in macro and micro terms. But are there things that lend themselves to sort of bigger scale operations and some things like, you know, because of your initial description, Lloyd, I'm thinking this is really small and forensic in the classroom. 
Are there two layers or am I misinterpreting what it is supposed to be about? All routines, if you will, can be broken down to smaller actions, whether that's adult routines or whether that's children's routines or whether that's routines of the school business manager or the school office or whichever part of the school it is. It's a series of, of, of actions that, that happen in, in a certain order to make things um, automatic and to make things uh, flow better and obviously to create space as well. And I, I know we're going to go on to probably talking about the importance uh, later on, but I, I do think, yeah, I think you could look at it from different levels. I think that's something that I hadn't really thought about until Neil just said there then. Um, I've been really sort of focusing my mind on, on the routines for children, but he's absolutely spot on in terms of it's everyone in the school, isn't it? Because the school is a living, breathing organism and, and it, it all needs to have, everyone needs their routines to make things run as smoothly as possible and to make things as effective as possible. Um, and, and, and again, like, you know, I think, I don't know that necessarily it's a macro micro in terms of uh, adults, children um, or, or school, school level and, and child level almost, you know, you could separate those out, but I think ultimately the, at the base of it, it's, it, boils down to the simplicity of it's a series of actions that are taken in a, in a sequence that 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 makes sense to, to to be to make people effective and and to to allow for the goals to be met i think and again we'll go on to to unpacking some of that in a bit you know i'm not trying to catch out genuinely wondering how we sort of i don't know articulate these ideas you know it, it makes makes so much sense that we want things to be as fluid as possible and as efficient as possible why why are routines important in that, in, in that process? Um, I think it just goes can go back to and you can really just it all back to the you know cognitive load theory, working memory overload in regards to all of that stuff, both at the adult level and child level. If you've chunked and automatized these routines, it effectively allows for far greater uh, scope and thought onto the other several hundred thousand decisions that teachers, leaders are having to make you know, every single day. If you can chunk your entry routine as a classroom teacher and you can get the students to practice that and they're automatic with it, then you as the classroom teacher can just start thinking more about the lesson preparation that's about to come later on pick up minor social cues that um, kids are giving off so you can you know get to the point where you're where you can preempt and stop potential uh, behavior from happening in the first place I'd say it just frees up that time where you can really start to think deeply about what that coming day or what that next action that's going to come actually looks like it's creating predictability because that breeds a safety uh, it breeds a safety for adults, it breeds a safety for children, especially SEN children, uh, who need that, need that predictability uh, in, in routines, you know. Um, but I, I don't think it's exclusive to them. You know, I, it's, it's the whole school. It, anybody going into their place of work feels more comfortable when they know the routines, when they know that there's a way in a system. And that's why it's so hard when you start a new job. You, you don't, you know, in a new school, you don't know those routines to start with. The sooner you learn them, the sort of better, the more you get into your stride, the happier you start to become in your job because 
that's the way we are sort of predisposed to, to, to sort of to function really, really well when we know the order and sequence of things because of that level of predictability. So I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing is, is, is the norms, like Neil was saying there, it's like it's those norms that are created within the classroom uh, and in the school. If you, if you want to create a, a certain culture in your school, norms are part of that culture. And to create those norms, you, you know, you need to make sure that the routines are tight and they're, uh, they're shared. And I know we'll go, again, we'll, we'll pick up on that a little bit later in terms of how we do that. But it, for norms and for predictability, I would say they're, they're two like key kind of like pillars and that, that, that's under the, the sort of the importance of routines. Yeah. As, as you guys are speaking, the, the phrase that's come to mind is it's not the severity of the consequence but the certainty of the consequence that's important. And that's one of the things I learned very, very early on in my teaching career, you know, was that where pupils knew exactly what the boundaries were, they knew exactly what was expected of them, then they felt safer and felt more able to sort of go with the critical mass. Um, and I know obviously these routines don't just apply to behavior, but as you're speaking, I'm thinking, yeah, that could definitely, you could extrapolate that out across everything and I know that as a you know as an adult I certainly feel security in knowing exactly what to do and what's expected of me you know because then it makes things it makes decisions much more easily made and yeah I think there's a lot to be said for that you know both for for children and adults so then which routines should be established and then potentially in what order for me it's always kind of been the transition thinking about this on a child level um, that a teacher might implement or that there might be a whole school um, system in place or a whole school routine in place um, for me it's always those transitions that lining up at the end at the beginning of the day the how you walk through the school the how children go from playground into classroom how they might transition between uh, lesson how they might transition between uh, you know gathering around a teacher's uh, desk for a practical or if you're thinking uh, key stage one how they might transition from the carpet area back to their um, tables how they transition from getting their food to being ready to learn again for the afternoon those for me are the key transitions because they're the ones where and again bringing back to you know drawing parallels to cognitive load theory those are the ones that children can do quite a lot because they naturally do those transitions day in day out but if they're not thinking what those transitions actually look like they can do those transitions without actually learning how to do those transitions if that makes sense and so for me it's always those transitions and thinking about those and giving teachers the freedom to practice those transitions with their students at the start of term because I would say mostly those are the ones those are the transitions where pupils don't have much of a chance to practice so there is that um, ambiguity as to how they are expected to behave and what they're expected to do and that's where, when you have that ambiguity, that's where some behaviour is likely to rear itself, which can cause uh, yeah, more behaviour and more work for 
um, work for you later on down the line. So those are the ones that I definitely think should be thought about and considered first and where those involve communal spaces that the whole school um, uses. I probably think there should be some principles set by senior leaders to what those routines actually look like. So there's that consistency then between year groups so they know what's expected of everyone all the time. The place to start is behaviour, isn't it? Behaviour routines. We start our ECTs, our early career teachers, with behaviour. We set off with behaviour because the behaviour sets a standard, sets a culture for the school, and no learning can be done without that. So it's almost at a child level, at a teacher level, at a top leadership level, if you're coming into a school new and you want to make your own impact, the first place you look is your behaviour, isn't it? Because everything starts from there, and those routines around behaviour. So for me, it's like, because... That behavior routine or those specified routines in, in those areas create the time for learning. Um, they carve out the space for learning. Without that, your space diminishes because you spend your time firefighting and you spend your time, like Neil says, the behavior rears its ugly head. And all of a sudden, half your lesson's gone because you've, you're wrestling getting them from the carpet and getting the pens out and getting the books handed out and all the rest of these things. Or, you know, you're, you're a new teacher and you've, you've not really thought carefully about how you've lined your class up or whatever and um, who's standing by who. And then there's chatting and disruption in the line and you're having to reline them up. It's all these things, you know, that all come back to behaviour. So for me, the first thing is, beha is behaviour routines in terms, of, in terms of ordering. I would then say instructional routines. So then I, once, once behaviour is, is kind of set and we know how to stop and listen you know and all these things are part and parcel of, 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 of the sort of the conversation going on now with walkthroughs and you know there's, there's some fantastic supporting documents and blogs and things out there to uh to codify some of this stuff but then the second the instructional routines in terms of you know what how we then maximize the, the most out of the learning so like how then do we go about the lesson in maths? How do we go about the lesson in English? What does that look like? How do we create routines within the lessons that structure the learning to support the best learning opportunities for children in that sense? So behavior to create the time, instructional to create the most potential from the actual learning that's going on in the lesson, I would say, um, in terms of ordering. Um, it's huge routines. Obviously, you could apply, you know, you could start, like you say, uh, can we start zooming out and start looking at different areas of the school? Um, but I would say if we if we are sort of looking at a classroom, which I would imagine there's lots of people listening who who, who are kind of thinking of thinking of it in that way, that that yeah, th those two sort of behavior and then instructional might be a, a smart place to start. You mentioned communal areas and having general principles. And I'm, I might be putting you on the spot, but what would your principles be? for those sort of shared areas? I think it's very much up to the, the school as to what they want, what those want them, what they want them to be. But what you can't have is a system where if you're walking through a corridor, one teacher does demand that their class does it in silence and one teacher isn't too fussed or bothered whether they do it in silence as long as they kind of do it, as long as they get from A to B. Uh, purely because then it, it just opens up the teachers for that chat that always happens. And I don't think any schools eradicated it completely, but the whole, oh, but when Miss 
or when Sir is teaching us, you know, we can do this, we are allowed to do that. And so it kind of creates that cognitive conflict in their mind about what they um, can and can't do. And some children can't cope, they find it very difficult to cope with that difference in expectations. I'm personally a fan of um, Andrew Percival's model, who um, spoke about something similar to this at Research Ed and his idea that, um, you know, this idea that behavior is a curriculum. So he shared out what his behavior curriculum actually looks like. And that is available on the Stanley Road website for people who want to look at it. But he has something called, um, you know, fantastic walking, where that is, they've decided as a school that is, you know, pure silence throughout the corridors. It's um, purposeful walking. So there's no dawdling or diddy dallying. Uh, it's hands behind their back, not because um, Andrew enjoys, you know, controlling bodies, et cetera, et cetera. But so if your hands are behind your back and that's the expectation for everyone, they're not going to have those issues where, you know, two classes are walking past and, you know, a cheeky little hit or a little cheeky little slap, and, you know, happens as those classes are walking back because they, you know, they are going to be, the expectation is hands behind your back. So there is no... Um, you know, there's no way, nowhere to hide with that. You can't, they can't just say, oh, sir, you know, I was just swinging my arm and then, you know, he came into me or whatever. And no, you know, if your hands are behind your back, there's no way that you're going to accidentally, uh, you know, make contact with someone else. So I think that's a pretty good one. And he calls it fantastic walking. So for staff, you know, that almost allows that um, routine to be chunked as fantastic walking. So staff can say, they can be really specific in their praise of, Oh, you know, well done, Callum, you're showing fantastic walking. Or if you need that reminder, you can say, uh, you know, Lloyd, I need to see that fantastic walking now. Thank you. And they know what they, you know, those instructions, that routine is chunk. So the students know what that is. You can, it's easily um, said to put that positive uh, swing on it when you instead of when you're correcting them. So say that's just an example currently of what, um, Andrew um, has at his school, which I think sounds to be quite effective. And I think it's something that we need to potentially look at at um, the school I'm currently in after uh, going to that session. Quite often a bit of kickback. I know you're a bit reticent to sort of say certain things there. But there's, there's, I don't understand it. There's, there's kickback about you know schools where they have those expectations. But having spent a lot of time in a lot of schools, and seeing the difference in, you know, even just the sense around the school where effective routines for behavior are in place and where they're not, it's night and day. You know, there's a massive disparity between the sort of the opportunity to use every moment as best as possible. And like you say, Lloyd, earlier on, you know, half your lesson's gone, you know, because of something that happened when you're walking from assembly to your to your classroom, you know, and I think just as an aside, walking with your hands behind your back is my preferred uh, mode of walking around the school. And, um, you know, it's got a almost a Sherlock Holmes air to it, doesn't it? You know, I'm sort of like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. Well, that, well, I mean, that's that, like I said, that's just an aside. But like Lloyd, when you talked about instructional, so we've established how important those behavioral sort of routines are. When you're talking about instructional, are we thinking solely from the teacher's point of view? Because I know, Neil, you've shared in the past things where classes have really effective routines for getting ready for learning, which I don't think fall into behaviour, 
I don't think fall fully into what my understanding of instructional is. You know, I don't know how we define those, but do you, do you sort of go as far as having routines for how things go in and out? You know, because in a maths lesson, you will have X manipulative brought out, but it won't be there for your English lessons or whatever. I don't know. Tell me more about that, Lloyd. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, <laughs> that line between what we define as behavior and instruction, I think is it's not crystal clear. And I think you've just, I was wrestling with it earlier when I was sort of thinking about, about, about it. I was like, what, what does that fall into instructions? Because essentially it's, it's a behavior that, they, <laughs> that they're showing, but it is instructional in the sense that they're carrying out an instruction, but they're always carrying out instructions when we do that. So you could get into this nuanced argument around whether it is instructional. I guess for the, for the usefulness of, of, of defining it, in terms of in, instructional behavior, yeah, I would, I would, I would argue that, that, that lesson start sequence would, would sort of come into that, come into that in terms of, and it may be then taken further with the type of lesson that you're doing. So for example, like we've been, working quite hard recently on our uh our feed forward sessions now they're inspired by claire celian uh went to see her school when she was up at st matthias and looking at what they were doing with with editing and proofing pretty smart stuff so we we've been implementing that model uh over the last um couple of weeks um so getting feedback from our teachers doing some cpds and deliberate practice on it and you know they, 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 there's a whole there's a whole set sequence to that lesson you know, when it is a when it is an when it is a feed forward session, there's a very clear structure to how we run that session. You know, um, and with paired proofing, one book goes on top of the other book, then they swap over. Then one paid one's the pen, one's the brain. Like Chris has said before, we have all these things communicated to staff and practiced with with teachers. So, so when we come to that sort of lesson, it maximizes the learning time. It maximizes the predictability for children. It allows them to engage with that learning. On a, on, a, on a deeper level, hopefully, because they are familiar with the structure of it. Now, we're in early stages, so it's not very good at the moment, <laughs> to be quite honest, it was really slow, and the children are trying to get their heads around it. But like we did with our reading when we rolled that out, and we rolled out, obviously, Chris's, Chris's you know, sort of principles from his book, we spent a lot of time working on that shared dialogue and practicing that stuff and codifying those um those routines around, you know, finger freeze, eyes on me, rulers down, all of these little tiny things, all of these actions, and uh, you know, are are what creates routines. And it's something that, like you say, I think you, you can split it into behavior and, and instruction, but fundamentally it's about, I think it, it, it's them following or carrying out an action, isn't it? On a, on a given command. And I think like to go back to, to go back to Joe's definition right back to the start, you know, a sequence of actions triggered by a prompt. So you get to that autom automaticity that Neil was saying, where it's cued, and then a sequence of things happens, like a chain of things happens in an order to, to move to move certain, certain things on. Now, within the lesson, you know, it's not the chains aren't necessarily going to be that long all the time, but there's a series of lots of different ones. And with the repetition of, of sorts of lessons, we build that predictability and the children know what's coming and they understand and they know what the expectation and the norm is, is for it. So I think it's, it's, you know, like having that, having that start lesson sequence, we, we as a staff uh, codified that very early on this year, we sat down as a team and we, we worked it together. We said, right, what, what do we want for the optimum sort of start lesson procedure here? You know, I know that sounds a bit clinical, but essentially that's what, that's what it is, you know, to use um, Matt Swain's term, 
minimize the bleed between sessions and minimize the bleed between different phases and stages of the learning. If you can do that, you, you, you're going to get your children operating far more efficiently. So that was one of the things we decided to do was sit down together and talk together about creating what, what would create the less bleed. And we really sweat that really small stuff. We said like, you know, so on our same day, in our, we have a daily same day intervention slot. During that time, for example, the books for the next session are all handed out. There is no handing out of books. You know, it's all ready to go. In the morning, the books handed out is ready to go. So there's none of that kind of like, and where they are collected in. And I know there's been the videos on Twitter of the super fast sort of pass the books to the end. And, you know, I know that's caused some controversy as well. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, I, I'm not saying you have to do it that fast, but if there's a system, you reach the goal. You know, we set all these little goals and when we break all the learning down, we break everything down to small, small goals, but it's the systems that get us there. It's not the goals, is it? It's the systems that get us to the goals. So define those systems, define the systems. And I guess we might have stepped now into how do we leverage it, Kieran? I don't know. You know, we might have just made a foray into, into to, uh, to the next question, potentially. Yeah, before we go into that, though, because I was about to say you're, you're almost bridging into how we can establish these routines, you know, for maximum leverage. But I'm thinking about your routine for CPOMs, which I don't know if other people don't use CPOMs. It's essentially behavior incident tracking software, I want to say. That's something you've established with your teachers, a routine that then you follow as deputy head teacher. I don't know if you want to elaborate a bit more on that. And maybe if there were other routines for adults in similar situations, I don't know. I think people are really interested to, to hear about them. Yeah, I think I think the behavior, yeah, that fits obviously with behavior and the behavior routines, I, I suppose. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many, many, well, and there are obviously hundreds of schools that use use CPOM software. It's a very smart software, very elaborate, very safe. But I think, you know, you can be, it can be used at different levels. You know, it can be used, some schools use it on a very sort of surface level, other schools use it in an extremely deep and analytical way. We've, we've got, we had some challenging behavior in our school, you know, we, we, as I'm sure all schools do. And so we decided that we needed to create really clear routines for teachers around what we do with that in terms of sort of a centralized uh, reflection for children potentially that made the wrong choices and how we record that as a staff, every member of staff being on CPOMs and having access to CPOMs. And that is the case even down to the dinner ladies that can access a computer after lunch to, to log any incidents that need logging. Um, those are then logged. And on a weekly basis, we, we review our behavior and we discuss at our senior leadership meeting. So I produce a report, which is very easy to do from CPOMs once you know, I say it's very easy to do. You, it can be done once you and once you know what you're doing with it. It is very easy. <laughs> it's not. It's not the most simple of interface in in the, in the first uh, instance, as I'm sure people listening who uh, use CPOMs can can relate. But once you once you've established the report setting, it is actually very easy. I just come in on a Monday morning, run my report. It then goes to to uh, our uh, our senior leadership meeting. We analyze trends of behavior. When we tag our behavior in, we tag locations. We tag what has happened uh, in, as, a, as a sanction, if there is one. Um, we keep a running record as well then of who is in reflections. And there's very clear systems and routines in terms of uh, review and then respond. You know, So th that is a constant, constant cycle. And then termly, we do a termly analysis 
which is a, a part of our yearly, you know, it's a routine thing that happens across the year. And we feed that back in. So if we have no, for example, we noticed before our term, we were having a cluster of incidents outside the junior toilets around the back. So we sort of said, hang on. And we looked at our routines and we looked at what we were doing and we split out the year five and six to do different toilets and put somebody in place. And we haven't had a behavior incident since there. You know, it's things like that. It's looking at trends and patterns in that sense, sweating that stuff and running those routines constantly we've managed to get a really good level of behavior now. And like so where we were in November, where we had some really challenging stuff and we hadn't really bedded this system in. Now we have, we're seeing real sort of fruits of that labor. So it's about, like you say, finding what works for your school in terms of a routine, but like having that kind of thought around those smaller actions and creating those repetitive incidents, like, you know, with that SLT thing, running that report every week and without fail, it is first on the agenda every week. It doesn't fall off. It's, it's like it sits at the heart of the, of the meeting because it's really important, isn't it? You know, we say how important behavior is for the culture of the school. So make it, a th make it a, have that kind of uh, standing and have that position in, in your meetings because, and make it, make it part of that routine. It's fascinating how much detail you've gone into there, Lloyd, to make that routine. And, you know, I think, did you do a Twitter thread on this a while back? Maybe, maybe not that long ago? Yeah, I'll, I'll repost it once the episode comes out. Um, yeah, we did a, we, I did a little thread on just explaining how we, we sort of analyzed and broke down the different areas. But again, it's about how to get that routine to be what it is and almost to, to leverage that routine that, you know, you, you need to make sure that you've laid the groundwork first before uh, you know, there's a lot of parts to that. It hasn't just that hasn't just happened overnight. That you know that has taken a, a, a while to get to that point since we put CPOMs in. Oh, was it about a year ago? Um, year and a half ago, we, we we put the system in. So it's taken a time to evolve to get to that point. Um, but you know, and I'm sure that feeds into sort of how how you get there, how you get there with routines and things, because it is it you know it, it it's a long game. So, Neil, how can we establish our routines for maximum leverage? I think the uh, the Gene Simmons principle is one to bring into this, and that's the, the keep it simple, uh, silly principle. I think it's very easy to think that these routines need to be somewhat elaborate in their design to get from... A to B, where that's not the case at all. The simpler that you keep things, the clearer that you are about them, the more likely that they are to succeed. That said, I think there are a few other things that we can do to make sure. So I think Lloyd mentioned this earlier about you may want this uh, a routine or a sequence of routines to um, go and form a, a habit. So you might chain certain actions together to form that routine and then you might want to think about how that routine is then uh, combined with other routines to create a particular habit so i'm thinking particularly about what our um end of the day routine or our end of the day habit perhaps would be better because the routine itself or the habit is several routines put together and you know how we expect the children to put things away how we expect any books to be passed down um, you know, then children all are expected to read and we'll call out um, children row by row to go and get their things. And we think really carefully about where 
you know, we stand um, where the adult stands to make sure that they can monitor what's going on in the cloakroom because our cloakrooms really aren't particularly great for managing behavior because they're very small. Um, children in year six seem to be getting you know, physically quite larger these days than I remember. So it's all about how you think about managing that. Um, thinking about a really solid cue to kind of start that routine off is uh, particularly effective. I'm not a particular fan of using um, voice to be that cue purely because you have, you're speaking enough as a classroom teacher, if you can find ways to minimize, you know, if you can create a chain of actions and a chain of routines and it's effective and you can implement that without having to speak, then, you know, that's great. And I think what you should be aiming for so you can save your voice as well as I think having a timed element to it where the routine that you're expecting um, suits it because I'm a big, I'm just a big fan of having almost that you know, accountability for those students that, you know, you are given you know, more than enough time to be able to do this. And this is the goal that we're aiming for. And children really enjoy kind of turning that into a game where you can say, okay, we may, we were able to put, everything away we passed the books down everyone was um, reading and it took us you know it took us five minutes to uh, get everyone out of the class to get their books and come back uh, get their bags and coats and come back into the classroom let's see if we can do it in four and a half minutes you know next week so you can kind of challenge them that way to gradually decrease that amount of time that's needed for them to do that which again just means you can maximize learning uh, just that little bit more. I think the other thing to do, and again, is to not be afraid to just front load that time at the beginning of a new year, at uh, the beginning of a new term, just you know to practice. You know, forgetting doesn't just happen within the subjects. Forgetting happens within the routines as well that we um, try to impart onto students. So allowing children that practice time that time to recall and remember what those routines look like i think really important to make sure that they are as effective as possible for me in terms of maximum leverage you as leaders in schools you need to consider your rollout your implementation so like neil said there you need to consider how and when you're going to address this with your teachers and then with your children. So like Neil said, forgetting happens, um, routine fatigue can set in and a revision and revisiting of routines needs to be systematic and it needs to be, and needs to be rigorous um, because all the best well in the world, like you say, tired teachers, week five of term four whatever it is you know things you 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 are on your knees you know with, with, it's a very tough job it's then that those routines can can slip and, and because the teachers are tired the children are tired and it's better you know and it, it will happen fatigue will happen but that's where as leaders we have responsibility to carefully and i mean this now carefully because it's not about being draconian with the way in which you reinforce it's about be, doing it in a supportive manner, but prompting and create, well, if you create that culture in your school, that that's the thing that we do, that's the norms that we, you are going to expect 
a little conversation, a little nudge from a leader at that point in the term to help you just support you through that time and just to get you make sure that everybody's doing what they're doing and celebrate that. Um, that's for me, that's what, what we're going for now. One, one, one excellent thing I saw, and this sort of feeds into the other point I would make, which is the codification of routine. Now, for me, the codification of routine, which is, which is again, what Neil touched on there, is, is vital. If you, if you can capture it, you can then share it and you can reshare it um, and you can go back to it. Whereas if you agree it and practice it and it kind of sits in the, I don't know, the school atmosphere, if you will, it just, you know, you have agreed it, but it's, it's not been captured and recirculated and summarized. And, and for me, uh, Sonia Thompson, actually, they film their, their uh, routines. Now, something I'm, I'm, I've been looking to do next term with my school is actually capturing on video what it looks like. So, what, I mean, what a fantastic thing to do in terms of smart thinking, like share that video then with staff who can then share it with children. You know, let's just remember how we, uh, how we do excellent walking, uh, or fantastic walking, like Neil said. Let's, let's just watch it. Ex you know, models, let's show models. Let's go back and revisit models to stave off some of that fatigue. I mean, it's just, it's just really smart for me. And um, yeah, I, I thought that was, that was really, really clever. So, so your implementation, your codification, uh, and your reinforcement are sort of the, the top ways that you are going to get to to leverage this stuff. And like on the ground, like Neil said, gamification is an excellent tool to get you know children motivated to do this as well. But the bottom line is, it's it's the systems that you create to support the, the routines that sit within them that are the most important thing. It's like I go back to it, it's the systems, not the goals. You know, the end goal is the learning, is the good behavior. We need to break all those, make sure all those solid systems are in place and revisited. And almost, you, you know, you fill in the tank with petrol up a little bit to get us to, to, to each of those milestone holidays before we reset and go again. You're kind of sharing the why with the students, why you're running these routines the way that they are, so they understand the reason. Uh, and I, you want to use that inclusive language of you know the reason we are doing this is so that you can be safe so that you can you know learn as much as you can with the time that you have in school and so that we can all have the opportunity to you know reach our potential during this phase of our education whatever phase that might be in and I think children kind of really appreciate and it kind of helps that sense of belonging uh, that some I think all students need and want from when they come to school because they're not just being told you know arbitrarily to you know oh, put your hand behind your uh, put your hands behind your back while you walk as if it is they are on some sort of you know prison line or whatever it might be you know the there is a clear why we're asking you you to do that and I think there's an element of teachers modeling it as well you know where possible if possible um in the sense that obviously modeling it to how students are done but you know unless you are you know carrying something from a to b then you know I think the teacher probably should walk like that as well so that it doesn't give the impression of you know one rule for them one rule for us but if they can see that being modeled and they can see that it's not just a teacher thing that's done to the pupils, this is how we all expect anyone to walk through our school. 
that just helps that buy-in, helps that belonging, and they can understand better why they need to do that as opposed to just being told that they need to do it. Capturing that why is essentially spot on. Um, and I, I just mentioned about codification in terms of the, Sonia and the videos. But I also think handbooks are and policies and things are really useful places to codify routines. Uh, you know, if you, if you make this part of the fabric of the school, when anybody new joining, anybody that can be new staff, new children, anything, there is a codified place where, you know, on a shared drive, for example, like we have, sits a handbook that has this small detail in it and supporting modeled videos. So you have the modeling examples and the codification of what the routine is. And I know that sounds like a lot and it sounds, you know, it's something, it's something that is a bigger task and it's something that will evolve as your school develops and improves. You know, I'm not saying overnight, go and write up all of your routines. That's not how it's going to work. You know, the distribution of that is important. Your middle leader distribution around what they want. For example, like you say, a feed forward session to look like in those routines. But then the whole staff handbook. I know that, you know, you can you can definitely say that there are people that have come in to roles who are great teachers who then unfortunately in some circumstances in some in some schools fall victim to the fact that they didn't know that this routine should have run in a certain way with the specifics and then they come they feel the wrath of an slt that haven't probably shared that with them and it's, it's not necessarily their fault they just didn't know you know and we then have teachers in a position where they're punished for something that really isn't their fault, you know? So we as leaders have a duty to codify, to share our expectations, to reinforce, revisit those expectations to stay the fatigue so that it captures that, you know, it really encapsulates that culture in the school and drives home those norms and shares that dialogue wide and clearly um, in a really precise way. Every mistake I made in my NQT year was in the handbook. I really wish that I had known to look at the handbook because it was as detailed and codified as you describe Lloyd and it was definitely my fault when I felt the wrath because <laughs> I should have read it I should have been clear on what I had to do and I would have made half the mistakes that I did make but you know so I think anyone who's listening and at the start of their career if you have such a handbook in place you know make, make sure make it your job to at least be familiar with it before you start the role you know say you, t- you take a job in June with a September start you know, try and use that time to familiarize yourself with it. And I think if you're anyone who is writing such a handbook, well, like listening to you guys today, you could almost take your principal, Lloyd, from, you know, you're developing your curriculum where you've got phase one, two, and three. Well, in phase one, you could have, well, let's develop the behavior part of the handbook and routines for behavior. Then the transitions, maybe those closer together, and then later the instruction and the instructional part. And then in those three phases, over the course of maybe, let's say, a year and a half, you could have developed that without having to say, okay, I'm going to write a 20-page book on the routines in our school all in one go, because that's a surefire way for things to go wrong, because things will be overlooked, they won't be checked, and then, you know, you're back to square one, or you have moved on since then. You know, I think, in my head, this is going to be quite a short episode, but I've got a feeling that, you know, we could talk about this for quite a long time and it's great that you know both you guys 
sort of executing the role of deputy head as well as you do, you know, it's brilliant listening because it, it just shows how long it's been since I've been in that position because I'm thinking I've got nothing of value to add to this conversation compared to you guys at the minute. So it's, it's been brilliant. It's funny you mentioned Sonia because anyone listening will have one more day to write a review of the podcast to sort of get a chance to win a copy of her excellent and um, excellent book and ethic of excellence in action you know so this will go out on the saturday of easter and um, i'm going to make the draw online on sunday yeah so if you know get your reviews in wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, you know you could have a copy winging its way to you all that's left to do is say thank you very much lloyd thank you very much thank you neil Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.